Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Natasha Anushri Anandaraja. Anu, as she likes to be called, was born in New Zealand and earned her medical degree at the University of Auckland School of Medicine. She worked with international non-government organization programs for child health and disaster relief before coming to New York City in 2002, where she trained in pediatrics, global health and public health at the Ikan School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We present Dr. Ananda Raja. You're very, very welcome to the show, Anu. And I wanted to start with you maybe telling us a little bit about your current role. What is your role and how did you come to that role? Sure. So right now my role is as the Director of the Office of Wellbeing and Resilience for the Mount Sinai Health System. And actually I came to that role through a very winding course. I went through medical school in New Zealand. I came to New York and did a residency in pediatrics. The whole time in my training, I was interested in global health. That, that's what I wanted to do. That's why I became a doctor. And so very soon after my residency, I was recruited at Mount Sinai to be one of the creators, one of the young faculty to set up a global health program at Mount Sinai. Mm. And so because there was so much interest from our medical students and our doctors in learning how to work with under-resourced communities, whether that was in the United States or abroad, we wanted to develop a program that would really prepare them to do that with their careers. And so we developed courses and, and specialized advanced tracks of education within our medical school, within our residency programs. We developed a fellowship. That consisted of classroom learning, but also, more importantly, experiences in the field. Mm. So having our students, our residents, our doctors working with mostly community-based non-governmental organizations in the U.S., in underserved communities in the U.S., and also in communities um, throughout the continent of Africa and then in some South Asian and South American countries. This is really fascinating to me because... As a medical educator, I don't often see students who are interested in the areas that you're talking about, because for a lot of them, it's about paying back debt. It's about setting up a career, ending up in a high-flying job as a cardiac surgeon somewhere in New York City. Here, you're talking about people who want to go back and actually give back and serve an underserved community. That's fascinating. Who are these people and, and what drives them? <laughs> Well, actually, I think this is a really good question because, you know, Mount Sinai is a very humanistic medical school. So it prides itself on that. It has a large community service philosophy, and it seems to attract students, at least a large proportion of its students are attracted because of this chance to explore that, that side of a career. And I would say maybe 20 to 30 percent of our incoming class, which is around 140 a year, when they come in, they express an interest to spend part of their career at least working with underserved communities or underserved populations. So that is the kind of stated interest as they come in. Now, I have to tell you that the pressures of being a physician and paying off a student debt do really press heavily on our students too. And so we do see that interest waning over time. So, you know, in, in the United States, it's a four-year medical program. So first and second year, we have a lot of interest. We place a lot of students. 
by the time we get to third and fourth year, students are starting to look at their between quarter million and half a million dollars worth of debt and starting to make other decisions for themselves, which we understand, but it's just tragic for us to see that loss from the pipeline of those who would serve and are the people we really need on the front line. And um, yet I'm sure there are people who stay the course and nevertheless end up in doing those careers. And these are very, very special people. Question is, how do we identify them? How do we nurture them? How do, how do you actually make them resilient for the long haul? Right, and that's the difficult thing. And I will say now, because we started the program in 2005, so we're a good you know, 15 years out, that I'm now you know, in my current role in well-being, and I also do a lot of activist work around equity, and in COVID have been doing a lot of work around equity and PPE, and especially for underserved communities. And the great joy for me is that I am now working with my former students. So those that really stayed the course are now firmly rooted in advocacy and activism as physicians. And I would like to say that that's due to our program. I think part of it is that we did provide opportunities for them to gain experiences that reinforced their desire to do this and allowed them to make professional connections and to maintain networks that supported them. But I really think that those who came in absolutely committed to this also left committed to it. And those that came in more more idealistic than actually committed kind of phased out. And so I would like to say it's, I think putting the support in place is very important, but I almost feel like... We didn't change anybody's mind. We allowed those who were truly committed to continue to be committed. But there, you know, retention in that career track is a hard thing. You know, it's not, as you know, it's not easy being a primary care physician. It's not easy working at a community level. They are the lowest paid doctors here in the United States. And it's, it's hard. And we have a lot of burnout and a lot of turnover of those physicians in, in primary care. How does healthcare respond to these people? Because government policy isn't going to change anytime soon. We're not going to suddenly find massive investment unless unless certain politicians are listening and are, are going to pay attention to that, which seems unlikely to happen in the foreseeable. So how do we as educators, how do we as a community support people to do these things? I think that's a great question. I mean, one movement that's been really happening over the past year or so is that there has been a movement in medical schools to drop tuition, to strike tuition. And that, that's a hard thing to do. It depends on a lot of private funding coming in and scholarships coming in and, and a reworking of priorities within an academic institution. But I think eliminating student debt is the best thing that we can do towards that. Are you seeing a generation of doctors who say, I don't mind not earning a fortune, but I don't, you know, I need to earn enough of a living to actually keep body and soul together. Are we seeing this in this generation? Are we seeing that degree of vocation coming out saying, I didn't go into medicine to make money? Yes, I mean, I think we are. Now, I may have a skewed perspective being again at Mount Sinai, which is a school that pulls in that kind of caliber of student or that interest level from students. But I, I really feel that, you know, when I talk to students about their careers, it is really about 
the burden of debt rather than wanting to be a millionaire five five years down the track. Hmm. It really is, well, how, how can I get free of this burden of debt? And I feel like they would be making more humanistic choices and choices about medicine that are closer to their heart and their inspiration for practicing medicine if they did not have that financial burden coming out of medical school. And, you know, it's just, you know, medical school itself can be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But on top of that, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the global health field, they want to get a master's in public health to supplement that. That's another fifty to $100,000. So they also limit themselves in terms of the amount of training they can get because as a resident, you are still racking up debt. You're being paid, but it's not enough for a living, especially in New York City. And so until you actually get into a consultant or attending position, as it's known here, you're not in a position to start paying back your student debt. So you put off prolonged training or additional training that would equip you for the career that you actually want. So it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult. It is difficult. You're right. Now, you say you've got 140, did you say 140 students per year? Yes, per year. Okay. What proportion of them do you think end up doing the kind of thing you're talking about, uh, global health, activism, and working with underserved communities? I think it varies. It's a little hard for me to put a number on that. I would have said anywhere between 5% and 30% of those at different points in time. So it was very, you know, different classes have different flavors as they come in. And in our, our early years, we were getting numbers as high as 25 and 30%. So when we did like follow-up surveys, people were still working with underserved populations as part of their clinical practice, if not the whole of their clinical practice. Now, those who were wholly dedicated to global health or to underserved communities were a much smaller proportion. And then we'll get waves that come through where almost no one seems to be willing to take this on. And I'm not sure what that is, that shift is, but we notice it very intensely. I mean, four years ago, we had a class that came through that were so steeped in social justice that it was actually a huge challenge even for us to keep up with them and their demands on us as a health system and as an educational system I mean for them we were so unevolved compared to what they had been learning in undergrad because here you know you go through high school but then you do an undergrad degree for three years a bachelor's before you come to medical school so they had already done a lot of work, and by the time they reached us, they were actually quite disappointed. We were, we were behind them in our approach to social justice. So there are some classes that push us really intensely like that, and a lot of them go forward into those careers. It's been something that they've been you know, dedicated to since high school, and then other classes seem to come in, and they're a little more transient in their interest. It is interesting and it is so fantastic that they're led by somebody like you who's got the passion to to see the whole picture and who gets the whole the fact that they are making a sacrifice in order to to get there. Let's talk about you then. What's your superpower? That's an interesting one. I think my superpower so so when I was in medical school I had the opportunity through, you know, I went to medical school in New Zealand and they give you an opportunity in your next to final year to do an elective. And you can do that anywhere in the world, doing anything you want. And it's three months, basically, of freedom to do something related to medicine somewhere. 
And I actually ended up volunteering with a non-governmental organization called Prasad Chikitsa in India. And my family's Sri Lankan and they moved to New Zealand before I was born. So I hadn't really spent any time in the Indian subcontinent. And here I was in India and I was working on a mobile hospital that delivered primary care to rural communities in India. And I learned so much about medicine and about the doctor-patient relationship from that those three months in the field. And I remember things that I learned in that experience every single day, practicing health, public health, medicine, because the principles were so ingrained in my mind at that point, and my teachers were just so they, – they really taught me about community. Everything that they did was based on what they saw as a need in the community and what they heard as a need from the community. And the practitioners were from the community, so they had accountability to the community. And there's nothing like accountability to your own community to keep you in line, to keep you committed, to keep you giving your best, to keep you watching yourself and trying to improve. And so that was the kind of, that was a really formative experience for me. And I think now a superpower that developed out of that is that I'm very good and very committed to listening to what is needed and responding to what is needed, whether it's my students or the communities I work with. And so I find that when I go into situations, it's quite, it's quite easy or natural for me to be able to take in a lot of information and then develop an action plan that, that suits people. And it's not a skill that I feel that we teach. I think it's something that has to be experiential. I mean, it was for me to watch it and, and emulate that and see how it could work. But I, unfortunately, I feel a lot of what is wrong with our medical system, especially our tertiary care system, is that it's very tone deaf to what is needed from the people it's trying to serve, whether it's our patients or our community as a whole or our students or even our employees. Leadership seems to not have the ability to really hear what is going on and respond to that. And it's a pity because I think a lot of suffering, a lot of burnout, a lot of our problems with retaining people in the medical, skilled people in the medical field, having our medical students feel like they're actually achieving the career trajectory that they wanted to. A lot of these problems come down to really just a disconnect between leadership who are designing and implementing programs and the people that those programs are supposed to be for. What stops you becoming cynical or skeptical or burnt out? What is it? Because I, I can't see any evidence of it looking at your wonderful smiling face. There is something special about you. What is that? <laughs> That's very kind of you. I am so cynical and so skeptical, but I'm not burnt out. Great. So I love what I do. I think my early experiences gave me hope that there's a different way to do things. Like it's hard to be in a tunnel with no light at the end. But when you've had an experience of how something can be, then you keep looking for that point of light and believing that it can be created again. And so this is why for me it's so important for our medical students to have experiences that show them something other than a broken system or show them a broken system that still is trying to regenerate and trying to integrate and trying to be iterative and fix itself. So often when we take our medical students out of the American system and we take them to a community-based clinic in Malawi 
they're looking at a system that's very broken, but they're also, they're in an environment where there's an expectation that we will deal with this, we will make it better, we will do it with the community, there is a sense of us building together, and they have an experience of themselves that they may not have within the American system. And so once they've had that experience, it's embedded like a seed inside that they can then go back to and say, well, no, things have looked worse than this, and together we've made a difference. And I will hold that for my community in the States as much as I held it, you know, in my one-year internship in Malawi. I think those experiences are key because otherwise what have you got to look forward to? And I think that's a lot of the burnout and despair from American physicians comes from not having any experience other than this. And also because of our American arrogance, not believing that there's anything better than what we currently have, which is, I mean, stunning to me growing up in a social medicine system in New Zealand to come to the States and have people just being in fear of what social medicine would mean here is mind, mind blowing. If people could see how it could run, I think that hope would be there again, you know, and a commitment to change. Our medical students who will be listening to this podcast will be very, very inspired by what you're saying. And what I want to maybe focus on a little bit is how do you, Anu, stay centered? Because certainly you could talk about medicine all day, every day. You could talk about what's broken and how it can be fixed, etc., etc. How do you keep that in perspective? How do you keep that from taking over your soul? That's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, it's interesting because people talk about balance, mm-hmm. about work-life balance, and I honestly have never found a work-life balance. I mean, I'm still learning. I'm 45 years old and I'm still learning how to do this. I think it's a lifelong learning. I started off trying to have balance. I failed very quickly at being balanced. And now it's much more about integrating. And I'm very committed to my work and I love my work. And I'm not good at putting it down. And so for me, it's less about trying to find a balance, but more about, well, how do I design my work in a way that it's generative and nurturing for my life? How much of my work that supports me can be designed in a way that I just love doing it? How much can I eliminate of those things that make me not want to go to work, make me not want to engage, make me not want to show up to this meeting, make me not want to open my laptop and look at my emails? Like, it's been a gradual like shift of, and the belief, shifting a belief system, like often as doctors, we are martyrs. Like it's just, we have this martyr syndrome and like shedding the belief that I have to suffer to be a doctor and actually letting myself have the choice to only choose. And it takes a bit of a negotiation and some sacrifices and, you know, but to really choose, let me just fill my time with the things that are meaningful to me. That's what keeps me, that's what keeps me going. I mean, you sound like a 20-something-year-old. You don't sound like somebody who's been doing this for many, many, many years. And I'm kind of scratching my head here going, how does she do this? How do you choose to do things that matter to you? Are you, are you good at saying no, for example? I've learned to be better at saying no. One thing that was very formative for me is that, you know, like like anyone else, I finished residency. I got straight into 
a job that was part-time clinical and part-time educational because I was developing the global health program. And I stayed in that position for about 10 years. And then there was a change in leadership in my program that I didn't agree with. And I actually gave myself the position to walk away from that. Hmm. And I was self-employed for two years. And during that time, it really cured me of a number of things. It cured me of the belief that I needed to be attached to an academic institution to be of value. It cured me of the belief that I needed a, um, an institutional an institution to pay my salary, pay my insurance, pay my benefits. I, I actually realized I could do all of that myself. Like I could get my own health insurance, and that's a big thing for people in the United States. I can get my own you know, benefits, I can find my own work. And so that separation from that paternal institution for, you know, it was about two years, really had me be like, oh, I can actually be an independent human being. My life did not come to an end because I stepped off a career path. I've managed to make and find work that is really fulfilling for me. And a life independent of the system that we're taught just to enter into is actually possible. Hmm. And so then when I stepped back into Mount Sinai in a different role and into another, you know, another institutional employment situation, I had the freedom to be able to say, I'll take that, but I won't take that. I'm only going to work part-time. Like I'd gone over that barrier of I have to be running 120 hours a week, fulfilling, checking all the boxes, meeting all the performance evals to to survive. That instinct had been, that myth had been destroyed. And so now at this point, I'm much better at saying yes to things, no to things, part-time to things, and really choosing not to be on that committee, not to pick up that paper, just to focus on what I want. And it doesn't come without sacrifice. I'm never going to be the dean of the medical school. I may never become a professor, but my life is something that I'm happy with. <laughs> my life is something that is, is fulfilling, but it really did require getting off a certain rat wheel yeah. and a certain storyline about what success means. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, albeit that I'm a professor, I can see the sacrifices that you have made and it, it makes complete sense because you know, often people say to you, when somebody gives you a dollar, You've got to ask yourself where that dollar came from and what the expectation is for you receiving that dollar. Because often it comes with a price tag that's much higher than the dollar that you've just received. And you've got to step back and go, do I really want to commit to giving back what this person wants for the dollar that they've just handed me? Yes. Uh, and that's, that's a very, very hard lesson for people to understand. It's so true. And and actually, you know, when we speak about burnout, there I, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with this kind of association, but we started talking about burnout in doctors and medical students and then have kind of taken on this concept of moral injury more, more fully. So saying that, you know, what what is causing doctors to fall out of the medical profession and become depressed or anxious or abuse substances or at worst commit suicide is not just a burnout because we're not sleeping. It is it is a moral injury because we're actually perpetrating or bearing witness to or allowing things to happen in our professional lives that deeply go against beliefs that we hold. 
as part of our moral fiber. And that dollar often forces us into positions where we are morally injured, where we have to see patients like this when we know it's not what our patients need, where we have to choose certain medications or treatments over others because we know the patient doesn't have the insurance for it, although we know we're putting their health at a disadvantage because of it. And those kind of injuries come hard and fast in the American medical system. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah. And yeah. the dollar buys that from, from us. It does. It buys a piece of your soul that you weren't prepared to give up. And I do wonder, going back to our earlier discussion, whether this is something that those students who actually survive the course and go on and do things, whether they have absorbed that lesson, learned that lesson, early enough in their career to say, this is why I am choosing this, because this makes complete sense. It makes sense to me not to do this, because if I do this, the prize is not worth the price, if you want to put it that way. The, yes. the price that I will have to pay in order to get the, the tenure professorship at that uh, high-ranking, so-called high-ranking institution. Yes, I think you're right. And I think it's a very small proportion of students who see the writing on the wall that way and are courageous enough to go ahead and choose a path. And I think they are the ones who find very good mentors to say, no, you can do this. And maybe role models who have chosen a different path. But I would say the majority of students still, you know, our culture tells them that they can succeed. And it's difficult. There's very little truth in the culture to say that reaching those career highs that we're all taught to think that we will ultimately be is, is very, for a very small proportion of doctors. Mm-hmm. There's a very small proportion of doctors who will reach that earning status, that academic status, that leadership or administrative status, that our medical students, you know, our school, you know, says this is a school for change makers. This is a school for leaders. It doesn't really value, well, what if you're not a change maker or a leader? What if you're just a damn good physician? What if you give the best care you can possibly give every day of your practice to the families that come through your, your door? No one's going to call you a change maker. No one's going to call you a leader, but that's what you train. That is beyond good enough. And no one really lets people know that, like, lower the bar. Lower the bar for what you want to offer or what you're meant to be in terms of value in the eyes of academia or or medicine? I guess it depends on your definition of success. And this is something that we often share with our medical students to say, there isn't going to be a Dean's Award on your first night on call in the emergency department when some guy comes in high on drugs and wants you to do something that you are not happy to do. And as he leaves, he spits at you. There will not be a Dean's Award in the morning to say, well done, on actually not doing him more harm by giving him that which actually was going to do him a lot of harm. Oh my goodness, that's so true. That's so true. That's a great way to put it. I know it's been a complete joy speaking with you and I, I don't want to stop, but we're going to have to stop because we've been going for nearly half an hour. Any parting thoughts as we, as you, you're speaking now directly to the students, your institution and mine, where they are trying to do these wonderful things, do you have any last thoughts for them as we, as we say goodbye to you? I would say, and I'm still learning to put this into practice myself, but really believe that, believe that another path is possible. Hmm. 
if you have a sense for who you want to be but you, and what you want to be doing and you don't see that reflected in the people around you or the career paths that seem to be available or the professional trajectories that seem to be valued by those around you, please believe that the person you want to be is possible. There are ways to do it. You will not be starving under a bridge. You will be supported there will be people to support you. There will be ways to put that together. There will be training that shows up to enable you to do it. So do not be afraid to step off the beaten path to create the career trajectory and to become the professional that you want to be. Where can they find you, Anu? Where are you available? <laughs> do you have a website? I do not have a website. Actually, the most recent place you can find me is a, a website we put up to fundraise and get PPE into healthcare institutions during COVID coverage. I mean, during the COVID response, um, the website is www.covidcourage.is as for Saturday. And so you can find something about me there, but I'm also happy to share my email address. And I don't know if you want me to do that now or if you want people to reach out to you or i think what we'll do is we'll put it in the notes that we will uh, attach to this podcast and then mm -hmm. you can share all of that and anything else that you want to share because i'm sure that people will be looking for you uh having heard you speak and and having heard the passion and heard the wisdom that you share in the course of the of the last half hour. I, I we, we wish you well. We wish you to be safe. And let's speak again soon. Definitely. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's really been a pleasure. And thank you for creating this platform. It's very important and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>